invite you to open your Bibles back to uh, Exodus chapter 12 and 13. We made it through most of 12 a couple weeks ago, talking about Passover. Uh, Israel, in, in a sense, a strict sense, is still uh, in the land, still in Egypt, that is, still waiting to get out and get away. And this becomes actually what we now think of the Exodus. This is their departure, and it's not one that is uh, smooth or peaceful necessarily. It's with a big sense of urgency. It's a big sense of hurry. Um, it's almost like um, birthing. Now, we've been through several ourselves. Um, we were just talking about one of them that you know how it is you go and you get sent back home. And, you know, after a number of those, you just decide that's not going to happen again. Not going home this time. So there was a day when it was pretty evident that contractions were happening. Uh, things were moving. Things were happening. It was a long day. But that day, there was a doctor appointment. So we just waited till that end of the, of the afternoon and went for the doctor appointment. And sure enough, uh, full, you know, ready to come. I mean, ready to come. They're like, do, you, do we need to get a wheelchair for you? Not me. <laughs> okay, just to clarify these days, all right? So, um, uh, do we need a wheelchair? Do we need a wheelchair for you? No, I can make it. Um, they get, to get across the street to the hospital, because the OBGYN was just on the other side of the street in those days, and we got across the street and get to the hospital. Do you need a wheelchair? No, I'm going to walk all the way. And I barely, you know, got the car parked. And here comes baby. I mean, it, it, something like that, right? Yeah. This is, the, this is the dad's side of the story, okay? Um, you know, you have these contractions. You have the labor pains. And you're like, nothing is going to happen. Then suddenly, it does. This is the birth of a nation. Uh, the Hebrews have been, the Hebrews the Habirus, they've just been going around uh, from place to place uh, in, in the days of Jacob, who would name, later would be called by the name Israel. Uh, and Joseph, his son, ends up in Egypt and says, hey, come on, Dad, bring the rest of the family over. There's famine in the land, but there's good stuff happening here. Uh, I can provide for you here in Egypt. And so the family, the, the clan, ends up in Egypt, and they stuck there for 430 years. I, I've, been, I've been in West Michigan now, uh-oh, since 1991. How long is that? Get your phone out and do the calculator for me. I should know because it's the same year I was married. 32. And, and I, I quip with people that we came to Michigan and we got stuck here. Uh, we, we didn't intend to stay. The plan was to leave and, and go back to Minnesota and the, the promised land over there. And there were, there were opportunities, but no, the Lord kept us here. And, you know, Michigan is a peninsula, two peninsulas, but you don't just pass through Michigan going from anywhere to anywhere. You have to purposely decide to go up into it. And sometimes... You get stuck. We've been stuck 32 years. We love it. it. It took about seven 
before we finally came back around the horn and coming up toward, uh, we saw the uh, Michigan, welcome to Michigan sign, oh, we're home. It, it took a while, and once in a while you still make us feel like it's new. Uh, you know, every week I'm reminded I'm not from here, but God is merciful and faithful and just to forgive us, and we're here. But Israel is now becoming the nation Israel. They've been, the Hebrews, they've been moving around, got stuck in Egypt, and God had promised Abraham in Genesis that your people are going to end up in bondage, and they're going to suffer for, for 400 years of bondage. And here now, they must have had about 30 years of goodness under the time of Joseph and those that remembered the work of Joseph. And then when Joseph is gone, 400 years of bondage, stuck in Egypt. Israel now is finally being birthed after the defeat of the gods of Egypt, the final plague, the destroyer of the firstborn. Those who are protected by the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, as the wrath of God passed over them, all who were saved, substituted, and in their place was the sacrifice of a lamb, the shedding of blood. And now Israel gets their first holiday. They get Passover and an entire week of rest. They've been in, been in bondage for 400 years, and now they finally get a week of rest, the seven days of unleavened bread. Now, as we read from the end of chapter 12 to the end of chapter 13, there's a key word that maybe you noticed, maybe not. It's Sukkot. This little town, uh, the name probably wasn't Sukkot back in Moses' day. It's, it's anachronism. It's something that says, you know, modern, we contemporized it. The Bible does that. The, the Bible brings things up to history, up to speed, and then reads back into it and said, you know, that place over there where they went to after they left uh, Goshen was Sukkot as we know it today. It's not what we know it today. We know it as Tel Shmarma or something. Not really. Tel something. Sukkot brackets this whole unit. And sometimes our chapter divisions aren't quite, you know, accurate. Sukkot is mentioned at the beginning of this narrative, and it's mentioned at the end of this narrative. And that forms a, a parenthesis, a bracket, or an inclusio, an envelope around this whole unit. And this is, a, this is a section now where with urgency, verse 33 says, the Egyptians say, get out of here. We'll call this, we'll call this I don't know, I toyed around with two words, confiscation or compensation. This is the compensation in a sense they had their wages withheld. They've had straw withheld to make their bricks. They've suffered. They've done with, without. And now God is giving them compensation for their hard labor in Egypt. They gain the favor of the Egyptians, not only asking for a cup of milk or a stick of butter, but, hey, could I have your necklace? We're leaving the country, and I thought it'd be nice to take along. Hard to fathom, but God anticipated this, and he told Abraham back in Genesis 15 that indeed when the people leave uh, the place of bondage, they're going to pillage the people that held them captive. God is providing for his people. He's forming a nation. This will become the national treasury in a sense. These people are saved from 
Egypt, but they're saved for the land. They're heading out to the promised land, that land that was promised to Abraham. We read about the promise in Psalm 105, didn't we? They're compensated, and, and here's a, a, a paradigm for the people of God that, that transcends the culture and transcends the time and transcends the old covenant and the new covenant. God has an inheritance for his people. We're not to be looking for going to the neighbor and asking for the cup of sugar necessarily or the jewelry or the clothing, which was worth a huge amount in those days, the fabrics. No, but here's how Jesus puts it for us as the New Testament people. He says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There is an inheritance for God's people. We need to wait for it. In the meantime, it is the way of Christ. It is the way of the cross. In the shadow of the resurrection, but its fullness and completeness won't come until he returns, coming again, establishing an entirely new order, a new reign of righteousness on planet Earth with Jesus as the messianic king ruling and reigning. Then, then his people will have kingdom blessings. Until then, you are to be the kind that are poor in spirit and meek in heart. Similarly, as the Egyptians were living within the realm of Egypt, so you and I live within the realm of the world, but we are not to be of the world. We are to be of Christ. Well, there is a compensation that is to come at the final victory of Christ. Verses 37 to 42 now go on, um, kind of rehearsing, uh, a little bit of what we've already talked about in the Passover, chapter 12. The people of Israel, verse 37, journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkot, and about 600,000 of them uh, on foot, besides women and children, a mixed multitude also went up with them. A mixed multitude meaning they're, they're not all Hebrews. Uh, it could be other people groups that were enslaved, Taking the opportunity, it's kind of like, you know, when you see those films where someone gets broken out of jail and there's the comrade or friend that you met in jail over there next door and say, hey, let me out too. Ah, uh, well, let's think about that. So here, here, you've got, here you've got probably other slaves that decide to take the same opportunity and go with the Hebrews out of Egypt. Perhaps there was some intermarriage. And they're all taking the opportunity to get out of Egypt. They baked the unleavened cakes, the dough, they brought them out. Um, not leavened because they were, they were thrust out. In a curious. Why, why the unleavened bread? Because they didn't have time to put it in. That's simple. That's as simple as it gets. We get maybe too theological about it in this context when the New Testament does some other things with the idea of leaven. But here it's just simply a practical, tactical, logistic issue. We don't have time for the bread to rise. In fact, we bound up our bowl so tight that it can't rise. You ever do that? You ever have this dough rising and you touch it? Oh, 
or you put the you left the lid on and it can't and it overflows yeah but there is in all of this a, a commemoration God has given them in this list three different ordinances to remember what God has done now they've made it from Ramesses to Sukkot somewhere along the Delta Nile region of Goshen uh, to Sukkot wherever Sukkot would be we think we kind of know and you, you can see on the map uh, there's an earthquake over on this side and it shifted down to the down to the lower left on the screen there <laughs> seismic movements right so uh, Ramesses to Sukkot we're talking we're talking maybe maybe 15 miles they got Woohoo! They've got 15 miles. They're really still not out. They're on their way, but they're not out. And Moses, probably remembering about the mixed multitude, now takes the opportunity to put a kind of parentheses here in the narrative and give us some other instruction about Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, 600,000 men, the the Bible students, they, they say, well, if there's four per family, it must be like almost two and a half million people. Now, why you would pick four per family? I mean, that sounds like more modern numbers than it does uh, ancient day numbers. But nonetheless, it, it's a sizable group of people. And within the biblical range of history and documentation. We have no reason really to doubt the number, though it does seem high, but we've read throughout this that God promised to Abraham he was going to multiply them. And, he, and we've read that even within the persecution, within the, uh, the um, infanticide and the ethnic cleansing, it, it didn't work, and the people of the Hebrews multiplied even more. Right? The more Pharaoh tried to put them down, the more they multiplied. So this is a, a miraculous kind of multiplication and intervention. Here they are, they're remembering the Lord's promise to Abraham. It's a night of watching. We see this in, in chapter 12 and verse 42. It was a night of watching by the Lord. It says it twice. To bring them out of the land... This night is a night of watching kept. Year after year, the people of God would remember that night when their nation was forged, birthed out of the womb of Egypt. And they remember it even still today as a people group, as a nation. It's a national holiday with religious undertones or overtones. Maybe the other way around. But we, we can't forget that this is the formation of an ethnic people as a nation, distinct from the other nations. Now, part of this um, concern here, as we go into 43 to 51, it is indeed a remembrance of what the Lord has done, but specifically, who is allowed to eat the Passover meal? 
The Passover lamb was offered specifically on behalf of the firstborn, but the firstborn himself was representative of the entire family. So everyone who ate with the firstborn was considered part of the family and was redeemed by the same blood of the lamb. Now you have this multitude coming out. Who, who's really allowed to eat of the Passover lamb and the blood to be applied to them? Apparently, uh, that first night, the angel of the Lord looked over any and every house that had the blood of the lamb applied to the doorposts. But now going forward, only those whose households are circumcised are allowed to partake of the Passover. Those who partake of the feast are not to be of the mixed group. This is not an ethnic thing. This is a circumcision thing. Well, uh, verse 43 to 51, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. This is a religious induction. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. We realized a couple weeks ago in anticipation of Easter that Jesus actually is the Passover Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And indeed on the cross, not a bone was broken, fulfilling the wholeness of this Passover. All the congregation, verse 47, of Israel shall keep it. You had to become religiously part of Israel to participate in the religious feast. The stranger who shall, 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 stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all of his males be circumcised. And then they may come near and keep it. And he will be as a native of the land but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and the stranger who sojourns among you. And all the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And they were brought out. So Passover is specifically for the people who identify with the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And if the people... A person wouldn't identify with the God of Israel, then they're not to partake of the liberating feast and its commemoration. Circumcision seems so old-fashioned, seems so archaic. Oh, I suppose we could go through all kinds of health concerns and medical reasons why it might be positive and a good idea. But it's really just a, a sign, a symbol of the flesh that gets in the way of a relationship with God. And yes, even we of the New Testament and New Covenant are circumcised, but not a circumcision of the body, a circumcision of the heart. And that's what it always had anticipated. That's what it always it was a picture of. A greater reality, it's a shadow of a reality that is now fulfilled in Christ. Christ. 
Yeah, Jesus gives his disciples the mark of circumcision, not the outer flesh, but of the inner heart. Romans chapter 2, verse 22. Paul very clearly tells us circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. A matter of the heart by the Spirit. Yes, there was circumcision in the Old Covenant, and there is circumcision in the New Covenant. Circumcision in the Old Covenant was in the body, and circumcision in the New Covenant is by the Holy Spirit in your heart, giving you a new heart, giving you a heart that is receptive to the gift of faith by the Holy Spirit. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul highlights this again. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Circumcised by the Spirit of God. And as we alluded to in the prayer of confession in Colossians chapter 2 and into Colossians chapter 3, if you have died with Christ, you are raised with Christ, so kill the old way of life. Cut it off. Stop those sins. Stop those behaviors, those patterns, those attitudes, the ways of thinking, the actions that are contrary to the heavenly kingdom of God. If you've been circumcised in heart and made new in Christ, then by that same Spirit you have the power to cut off sin and stop well, consecration then comes in chapter 13, verses 1 to 16. Another of the three ordin- uh, of the ordinances that is, is here. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day uh, in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand... The Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Aviv, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service In this month, seven days you will eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a fast feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you a sign on your hand as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep his statute with its appointment time from year to year. And the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers. You shall give it, he, you, he shall give it to you. You shall set apart to the Lord all the first that opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that our males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. A donkey is an unclean animal, uh, as we would find out later in the law. 
what do you do? I mean, it's a, it's a useful animal, powerful tool, tractor in those days. You know, we don't want to just slay every, every donkey, so can we redeem it? Yes, you can redeem the unclean donkey with the lamb. You can redeem the firstborn of the donkey, really kind of identifying ourselves as the unclean that also need to be redeemed. Every firstborn among you. Um, verse 14. In time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? And you'll say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb. But all the firstborn of my sons I redeem, that I shall be as a mark on your hand, your frontlets between your eyes, and by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Notice how many times the strong hand of the Lord is mentioned. It frames this whole section, verses 1 to 16. By the strong hand of the Lord, he brought us out. And why do we, why, in this case, why do we keep leaven out of the house for a week? Why? why? We, we don't quite go that far, but from, from Good Friday till Easter morning, we have the electric lights out in the house. Ah, we, we're not rigidly legalistic with it. We allow night lights. We allow flashlights, you know, battery kinds of stuff. But no big lights. It can get challenging in the dark at certain times and certain chores, but that's kind of, and, and why? Why do we do that? It helps us remember the darkness. And it provoked questions. Dad, why? Why do we got to turn off the lights? Sometimes I ask that of myself, and I stub my toe. Why am I doing this? It is to provoke the questions. Why no leaven? I mean, it's so unusual. It's so odd. It's, it's not very tasty. Matzah. I'd rather have a saltine than a malta. That would be matzah. Malta. That's yeah. no malted. So, um, sorry. If only I could rewind. It gets the kids to ask questions. Why do we do this? And it gives mom and dad an opportunity to retell the story of redemption. Well, God brought us out of bondage with a strong hand. Let me tell you what God has done for us. Let me tell you the stories of God's work in our lives, in my life, in our family. Let me tell you about Jesus who died on the cross for your sins but was raised that you can have newness, a life in Him, a, a new heart and a new life, freedom in Christ. These are ways to, to tell the old, old story. You notice twice it, it's, it's brought up in this passage. The son says, why, Dad? And twice the dad says, because God brought us out with a strong hand. 
Like, if Moses says it twice within the same section, it's probably something we should do, huh? A strong hand of the Lord. This gives us a model for parenting, to tell the stories. And sometimes, at the right times, the appropriate times, we tell of some of the, the gore. Yeah, I made mistakes, and I don't want you to make the same mistakes. Here's the kind of thing I did, and I want to save you, preserve you from that. But you need to trust the Lord. I can't always be there to save you. I can't save you. But God will be your Savior. And He brought me out of that bondage. And He can bring you out of that bondage. This is how we teach it's very simple. It's not hard. It's not difficult. The hardness is just not being tempted not to do it. God gave three ordinances to help the people to remember. Remembering, you know, we talk about the spiritual disciplines, prayer and scripture reading and Bible study and fellowship with the saints and those kinds of things, and those are extremely important we grow together in those things. But one we don't talk about maybe so much, a very important spiritual discipline is remember. Remember. We'll be at a deficit in our spiritual life and in our spiritual growth when we forget. Remembering is a significant discipline in the Christian life a faithful and fruitful spiritual life, a godly life, this simple discipline to remember. Remember where you came from. Remember where you're going. Remember who you belong to. Not Pharaoh, Jesus. Remember. Failures come when we forget. And when we forget, we get trapped and here is a trap even within the passage here. It's here to be a remembrance. Remember the word of the Lord. Remember the word of the Lord. It'll be tied around your hand and tied around your head. Remember the word of the Lord. So what do they do? They took little leather boxes with straps and strapped it onto their hand. If you're left-handed, you put it on your right hand. If you're right-handed, you put it on your left hand. And you put it on right, above the, right, right under the hairline and you tie it around the back. And you got this box sticking out the top of your head, a box sticking out of your hand. And inside are little papyrus scroll papers of Torah, Scripture on it. I got the Scripture in my hand. I got the Scripture in my head. I'm good to go. Maybe. I mean, okay, I've got, I've got my favorite little prayer book that I carry with me that I thumb through and page through. Tools are good. Devices can be helpful. But don't let the techniques and don't let the devices replace the heart, the word, not the form. Sometimes the form's important. We'll get to that when we talk about worship later in Exodus. The form's important. The whole sacrificial system is a shadow of realities in heaven. Wow. Anyway, our failures 
are when we forget the promises of God and when we turn to the use of ornaments rather than the change of a heart and a mind. Remember the word of the Lord, his promise. The consolation then is this last section that we read, verses 17 to 22. And Pharaoh let the people go. And when he did, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Huh. God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though that was near. The way of the sea would have taken them about two weeks to get from Goshen into the Canaan promised land. Hittites, Perizzites, those guys. Two weeks. Took them 40 years. Could have done it in two weeks. God, why? Well, the Philistines are there. The Egyptian outposts are there. And you guys are just a brand new nation, baby nation. You don't even have an army yet. And you, I'm not going to send you up to the Philistines. I'm not going to send you that way. You're not ready. You're not disciplined. You don't have the cohesion. You don't have the unity. God knew his people's weaknesses. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our frailties. And he is gracious and kind to lead us not into temptation. Isn't that how Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew chapter 6? God, lead us not into temptation. You ever, you ever consider the counterfactuals in life? The, the what-ifs? Oh, if only... If only, if only we had gone the way of the sea and been there in two weeks. No. God knows better. It, it, it. Have, you ever, have you ever been grateful for the things God never gave you? That is just a turn in my thinking about gratitude. I'm really really quick to see a oh, flat tire. Man, if only I had gone left instead of right, I wouldn't have gone over the nail. And what I don't consider is maybe God gave me the flat tire and the long way around to preserve me from a greater problem or a greater weakness. This is the consolation of the Lord. Not consolation prize, but this is the consoling work of God. The comforting work of God for his people. God leads his people. He equips his people. He illumines his people and he abides with his people in this paragraph. Now, yeah, God could have overwhelmed the Philistines just like he did the Egyptians, you think? Do you have enough faith to believe that? Yeah. 
Why not? Why didn't he? Well, God in his wisdom, yes, knows his people's weaknesses. And we need to consider that he knows more than we do. Like parents and children. It's hard, kids, I know. You don't realize how much your parents do know. Like, you know, vacation time's coming up and you're driving in the car hour upon hour upon hour. Like, I don't think Dad knows where he's going. We're lost. I hear them talking up front, you know, get the map out, honey. Oh, but Mom and Dad do know just a bit more than you can see. And God knows infinitely more than you and I can see. Trust His wisdom. You know, it says God led them. It means God was ahead of them. It means God didn't let His people go anywhere He didn't already go. And we can, we can apply that and bring that over into the Christian life, can't we? God went ahead of us and conquered sin and death that we need not be afraid. He doesn't tell us to go anywhere that He hasn't already gone. Trust Him. Trust His promises. Trust His Word. They brought Joseph's bones in some kind of ossuary or some kind of mummified condition. Who knows? Back in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph says, I'm going to die, but I want you to take my bones into the promised land. The Lord's going to come and visit us someday. Bring my bones. Can you imagine? I mean, I've had the opportunity to, to be in Red Square and to walk by the, the what you call it, mausoleum type thing where one of the former leaders is there. And you can go in and view. I, I can't imagine exactly what what it would be, where they've got the bones of, of Joseph. But it's there for the people to see and to remember God's word and God's promise to them that he's going to bring them into the land. And it's a hope of God's fulfillment. And it's a promise of life, of a resurrection. Joseph is anticipating getting into the very land that God will make for his people and be raised there one day. And so the people are to fix their eyes on the promises of God's Word. And this was done by faith. Hebrews eleven twenty two tells us so. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. He believed the promise God gave to Abraham. The reminder of Joseph serves as a beacon of hope. The same God, then, is with them, abiding with them. It is quite the fascinating picture, isn't it, of this fiery cloud. Verse 21. 
The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way at night in a pillar of fire to give them light. They might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. He would never leave them. He would never forsake them. He's always abide with them. The same God who separated light from dark in the Genesis creation account is the God here of creation and the God of redemption. You think of that promise to Abraham when, when God made the promise. He said, Abraham, take, the, take these animal sacrifices, cut them in half, divide them, and make a walkway in between them, and you wait. So Abraham does. He takes the animal sacrifices, cuts them in half, divides them, walkway in between, and he's waiting, waiting, waiting. This is a covenant. He cut a covenant. And, and Abraham's waiting, and then what shows up? A smoking fire pot. Fire and cloud. And the God, God himself, walks between the cut parts of the animals. He says, in saying to Abraham, in effect, Abraham, I know that I've made promises to you, and I expect certain things of you and of your people. And when you can't keep your promise, I'll cover you. You see, the person who cut the covenant had the one in submission walk between the cut animals and say, if I ever disobey, if I ever go rogue within your kingdom, if I ever go rebellious in your sight, may this be done to me. Slay me. And they would walk through those pieces. But that night, God walked through. The smoking fire pot walked through the divide and took on himself the punishment for his people. That's what's anticipated here in the fiery cloud that is always with his people. There's, there's some wonderful things we could read in Isaiah about the cloud and the presence of God, and it would seem by extension that he's talking about the Spirit of God among them. And we have then, as members of the New Covenant, something even better than a pillar of cloud and fire with us. We have the abiding presence of the covenant-keeping God within us, indwelling us. We're in Easter tide, 50 days of Easter. You thought the 12 days of Christmas was long. 50 days of Easter. How do we live in the wake of the resurrection? Because on the 50th day, the day of Pentecost, God gave the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. The birthday of the church. So that now each and every member of God's people are, are to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The abiding presence of God rests upon us, 1 Peter 4.14. We are led by the Spirit of God, Romans 8.14. 
We are to keep in step with the Spirit of God. Galatians 5.25 We are to be filled with the Spirit and bearing fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5. We have it way better than the Old Testament people. God in us. The Lord is faithful and the Lord is mighty. With a strong hand, He redeemed His people. So what do we do with this? Know this, that God is always faithful to His people. God knows His people's weaknesses, and God knows which way is best. God is always present to guide His people. So do this. Remember His Word and His work. Trust His wisdom. Rest in His promises. And journey in His presence. So, Father, indeed, what a marvelous recounting the mighty work with which you brought out a people and formed them to a nation. We come and we need a similar kind of work but not on the outside. The inner person of the heart. We ask, Lord, for a mind and a heart to remember. To remember the, the power with which you raised Christ from the dead. To remember that that same power has raised us to new life in Christ. And that same power, when He returns, will raise our, our decayed bodies to glory. And on that remembrance... May the Spirit enable us, empower us to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. May we be faithful to remember. May we be faithful to pass on the story of your might to the next generations. May we not be inhibited or forgetful or lazy or fearful. Enable us, embolden us, we pray, to stand on the promises that you've given us. For Jesus' sake, amen.